569. Warning. Access restricted. Please submit to DNA. Verification. Processing. Verification complete. Access granted. Welcome. Hello, hello, and welcome to the Monitor Room at the Christian Geek Central Podcast, a biblical examination and celebration of geekery and geek entertainment, as well as the official podcast of ChristianGeekCentral.com. I'm Peter Franson from Spirit Blade Productions, producing entertainment and resources to hopefully equip, encourage, and inspire Christian geeks like you and me to live in the freedom and purpose that Christ has given us. For more information about Spirit Blade Productions, check out SpiritBlade.com or Patreon.com slash Spirit Blade Productions. Let me just adjust this pop filter just a wee little bit there. I think that's better. On the show today, a review of the Titans TV show season two premiere, Trigon. Some thoughts and reactions to the first six hours of Greedfall on PS4 and a journey through kind of my history of studying the Bible with along the way some recommended versions of the Bible and some thoughts on which is the quote-unquote best as we continue through my bookshelf tour. It's been a little while, and uh, there's just also a bunch more miscellany, miscellany, miscellaneous stuff. So here we go. My father once told me that I could use my powers to make a difference. He told me I had a responsibility to help others. He told me I could save this world. Save everyone. Then he told me, walk the gerbil, walk the gerbil. Frickin' weirdo. The season two premiere of the DC Universe streaming service program titled Titans. Uh, The synopsis on IMDb. uh, Actually, I forgot to look that up. (laughs) Crap, I've got uh, it chapter two still on there. But uh, yeah, so... If you saw season one, let me talk about season one, actually. I didn't do an actual review of season one, so let me just catch you up on my thoughts because I binged season one recently on a trial membership of DC Universe, uh, and I um, I had some likes and dislikes. I am a comic book fan, a DC comic book fan, and I loved Jeff Johns' series of Teen Titans. I even read some of, oh, who was the author at the time? I don't remember, but about the same time, the the Titans book that was coming out at the time. I enjoyed a lot of that, followed that for a good while, actually, through several writers. And so I'm definitely familiar with these characters and the characters that are part of the classic lineup and also some of the alternate lineups of the Titans and Teen Titans over the years. And so I did come into this with, you know, some baggage. Uh, but I, I, over the years, I've really become open to different interpretations of comic book characters. I've just been around long enough that I've seen enough interpretations, both in the comic books themselves and, of course, in movies and TV shows and stuff, that I'm pretty open. It's more about, is this a vibe or an interpretation or a tone that I like, whether or not it's quote-unquote true to the character. You know, that does play in a little bit, but more and more I'm just open to, is it my style of story, you know? Um, So in season one, my dislikes would include... This is going to sound weird if you if you know me and my my tastes, but the violence and the gore and the darkness. 
<laughs> now, normally, I'm totally up for violence and gore and dark, serious stuff. But especially early on as I was watching it, it almost seemed com comical how far they were leaning into just being brutal with the, with the you know, like, I mean, the, are these superheroes? They're like, they're straight up, I don't want to say straight up killing people, but they are maiming them for life horribly. And like blood is just flying everywhere and bones are breaking and it's just, they're horribly maiming people. <laughs> And part of that is because there is a there's a theme going on with Dick Grayson, um, who is trying to come away from the dark place that he is in in his crime fighting because of the influence of Batman in his life over the years. And so I understand that. But it wasn't just Dick Grayson that was doing some really violent, brutal stuff in the, in the combat scenes and stuff. So I was just like, are they just really trying to like we're cool and for grownups? It 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 gave me a vibe a little bit like um, a little kid who's trying to like use really nasty swear words and you know just really trying to sound tougher than he is you know <laughs> um I, I just thought from the source material i would understand that with a number of other characters but with the source material here for the care i didn't i don't mind a dark world let me be clear about that i really enjoy dark worlds but i like uh there when it's appropriate to have a hero that is a shining light in the midst of that dark world and i thought that at least a few of these characters maybe should have been a little bit more of shining lights <laughs> than they were uh but anyway so that took some adjusting I, I did eventually adjust to it over time and just kind of say okay well let's just see what they're going for let's see what they're doing here let's set aside my preconceptions of these characters as much as i can and uh, so i at least adapted to it and i think maybe it did either tone down or uh or i just adapted to it over the course of the season i didn't like the nuclear family the villains in the first season they were just a little too overstated i wanted them to be a little bit more realistically psychotic instead of comic booky psychotic uh i did not like starfire or Corey's wardrobe um I, i'm glad they didn't go with the really skimpy stuff she's known for in the comics so this is definitely an improvement over going that route but i'm not into the like glamour disco 70s aesthetic and so i was like Ugh. <laughs> All that fur and stuff really took some uh, doing to get, for me to just kind of accept her. Um, I didn't like the mousy version of the Rachel Raven character as this kind of like normal teen, young teen kind of thing. I guess I just wanted something a little bit different. And something about her performance, I think, was also at play, and I'll get to that a little bit later. I didn't like Garfield, Gar, Changeling or Beast Boy, whatever you want to call him, in his peppiness. He felt a little bit unnatural in the same way that the Flash in uh, the Justice League felt a little bit un unnatural to me, a little bit like trying too hard to be the peppy comic relief, you know. Uh, that was also toned down in, in the first season. He also had some variants, especially toward the end. He went through some dark stuff, you know, so I didn't like that at first, but, um, and then there was a, at least one sexy scene in a episode focusing on Hawk and Dove that I was like, you guys don't need this, and I just kind of scrolled and skipped past it, so I don't know exactly how, uh, deep they went with that, but, uh, it was, uh, just not needed. What I liked, though, I liked the investment in Dick Grayson's character, um, and his backstory, both his personal backstory and as it relates to Batman and what it revealed about Batman, just seeing Batman through his eyes and stuff. You know, just in general, they invested in characters in the first season. Starfire's, Starfire's personality is not at all like her wardrobe, and so I was glad to get to know her a little bit more. And all these characters really have a haunted past or they have internal struggles. It's very character driven, and I really appreciate that. 
that. I like that kind of fiction far more than a, a story-driven or plot-driven or event-driven fiction. Um, I loved the Hawk and Dove backstory episode. Really got into uh, just some uh, heavy and fragile places in their uh, in in the emotions specifically of Hank Hall, you know. And um, so I just really appreciated that. Uh, I love the wide use of historic Titan characters from the comics. I mean, Donna Troy and, of course, Hawk and Dove, and they brought Jason Todd in there. They're really just, like, drawing, putting their tendrils all over the DC universe and pulling in all these different characters, and I've really appreciated that. I liked Batman in the dream sequence, even though you never see his face, never really hear his voice, um, but it was cool to see him doing his thing, and, uh, and, and I also liked about this show what I brought to it. Uh, there was th- th- emotional beats that I think affected me because I know more about these characters and their backstories and stuff. And uh, it it was in, had enough in common with the versions I know in the comics that I could bring what I knew to help me emotionally invest. And it certainly did that. And I like the action and the visual style and the, the heavier, darker tone and stuff. So all that I really liked. Summary thoughts on the first season before I can get into this, the second season premiere, sorry, um, is that, okay, this is not my Titan. It's not my Titans. It's not my Teen Titans. But I'm open to this reimagining. You know, I'm invested at this point. I'm ready for more. I'm not starving for it as I head into season two. Um, And I'm hoping to see heroes start to emerge uh, as lights within a dark world rather than themselves remaining in a really dark place. Um, So, yeah, that's kind of where I came going into the premiere for season two. And I think that there's reason to think that that is where they're going to be headed. I'm not going to be giving what I would call plot spoilers for the premiere of season two, but I am going to spoil one character appearance. Um, so if you don't want to know about a character that appears in this that has not appeared before, then you want to turn me off. Um, they're continuing to aim in the premiere of season two for a dark, serious, quote-unquote superhero uh, action. I, I put superhero in quotes because, like I said, they're, they're all like doing brutal stuff. <laughs> <laughs> to people um and and straight up killing you know nightwing did straight up kill some bad guys um in one scene he in the in the first season you know so that that tone really seems to be continuing but in this premiere episode there's really a turning point for the dick grayson character where it seems like he is definitively now going to be moving into the light you know uh but the jokes uh, are rare which i appreciate um and sometimes even successful as tension relief and i think that's how jokes function best for me in this c- kind of uh well in movies in general unless it's a straight-up comedy you know uh so yeah I, I i thought that they worked well there weren't too many of them it continues to be very character driven in fact, I don't want to say at the expense of, because they could, you know, it would, wouldn't have to be at the expense of, but there's certainly, as far as the story goes, some plot logic that just really failed for me. Um, you know, there's a, a moment where Raven goes and uh, pursues this exchange with uh, Dick Grayson to try and help him come back from the darkness and stuff. And she said, I need to go see him first, you know? And then it just seemed like, you know, as I look back after that scene, when, when they went on after that scene to the rest of, you know, the resolution of the plot, I'm like, you didn't have to do that with Dick Grayson. I get that you wanted to, but there was like bigger, major stuff going on with Trigon. <laughs> Did you really need to go? I know you had a dream about Dick Grayson and da, 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 And so it's all big callback to that, but just plot structure wise, I'm like, we didn't need you to do that. <laughs> It seems a little more urgent to take care of the Trigon's going to destroy the world situation. Um, But anyway, and then also there was um, 
there was a news reporter uh, that was like talking about the the Titans as uh, and referring to them as a new group of masked heroes. And I'm like, did you just watch that last scene? One of them was wearing a mask. There was like, I don't know, six or eight of them or something like that. One of them was wearing a mask. And they are referred to as a group of masked heroes. But they were all wearing, like, except for one, their regular civilian clothes with no covering on their faces. So that was just a weird bit of, uh, yeah, there's there's some issues with the writing in terms of uh, plot logic. But I will take that. I will take that over the reverse. I would rather have a weak, illogical plot than uninteresting characters that make... Uh, psychologically, you know, unrealistic or just weird choices or whatever. And and I felt like um, at least, well, you know, I'm not saying that all the characters in this story made these these psychologically realistic choices. It's faux psychological realism, you know, that I really uh, want, or at least I'll, I'll always take more than that and go, you know, full-on realistic psychology. But uh, I at least want what I would call this faux realism in psychology. And I will t- gladly take that which I think I got in this episode, um, you know, over a really realistic plot that's or or a beautifully constructed plot that just has characters that I don't get pulled in by at all that don't seem to have realistic internal struggles, you know, um, or at least interesting internal struggles. So this is very different from the CW DC universe. And I can only say to that, yay. <laughs> I don't feel like it's a bunch of, you know, models posing, you know, and in between action scenes. Um, this, I, I feel like they're really going for some good performance stuff here, you know. Um, the language and violence, you know, is the same as season one. And, you know, those things don't bother me. I, again, it's just kind of like the disconnect with what I would expect from the source material. But I, I've adjusted to it or it's lightening up as of the premiere of season two. Um, and again, I think that's possible indications that they are heading toward the light by the end of this episode because of events that take place. It makes me feel like, okay, we've dealt with this major issue that was building and building all through the first season. And now we're starting into a new chapter in a multitude of ways that seems to include... Um, more brightness, both in the visual aesthetic and in the setting and the circumstances. There's it's just kind of a hopeful, dare I say, optimistic vibe. Uh, I do hope that the world and the threats remain dark, but I hope that our heroes, you know, and, uh, kind of start embracing the light a little bit more. And I think that's probably going to happen. But, you know, I, um, there's heavy subject matter, too. And I don't mind heavy subject matter. You know, there's a scene with a very sad scene involving heroin in this first episode. I was just like, dang, they're going to like a dark place, you know. And I appreciate that. Uh, the characters are still sometimes just a little bit overstated, as I thought they were in the first one, but toned down in this episode compared to last season. You know, so Gar is not as peppy. I mean, the circumstances didn't allow for as much pep. He did have one line uh, in the middle of you know some bad stuff going on that actually got a chuckle out of me. Uh, but other than that, he wasn't like overly peppy. He was really brought down, I think, to the ground floor now that he's experienced some really messed up chunks of life um and then jason todd was not as irritating he seemed to be humbled and uh you know thought better of some of his actions in the first season and so i thought okay so maybe they're not going full-on annoying damian wayne with jason todd even though that basically jason todd was behaving like damian wayne does now when the character was originally conceived in the comics but i was like okay maybe i can deal with this jason todd more than i thought i might um okay so the character reveal is bruce wayne we've not seen his face before they hadn't really cast him before but he's been cast now and appears not as batman but 
uh, man, when he was revealed, I thought, is this Alfred? Uh, his reveal shockingly indicates to me that we are probably in a future DC universe of sorts where Bruce Wayne slash Batman is like, you know, a senior citizen. Um, and I could believe that maybe he was still fighting crime. I mean, I think he must be because Dick Grayson talks about Batman being off with the Justice League doing stuff, but he's got to be using like some kind of cybernetic or hydraulic enhancements or whatever he needs, you know, servos in his suit to be able to keep up physically with what he used to be able to do back in the day because he doesn't look like he would be capable of being the Batman, you know, anymore. Um, and uh, so anyway, that that was really interesting, though. Um, it made me all the more open to this version of the DC Universe because it says to me, okay, um, don't expect them to tie into movies or to the C what the CW is doing. Let's just treat this as the DC universe that's in the future. Maybe it's connected continuity-wise to those other universes. Maybe it isn't. Um, it probably isn't literally supposed to be because there's a character reveal that I think has already appeared in the Arrowverse, and, I'm and I won't say who it is, but I'm like, oh, I don't think that's the same actor. And if this is a future version of the DC universe, he should be much older unless he's got some way of youthening himself. But uh, uh, anyway, so, but I mean, if you want to kind of have a headcanon that tries to fit them all together, I think so far, uh, this Titans by itself, not Doom Patrol, because Doom Patrol has Cyborg in it and that, that doesn't work. But, you know, just Titans by itself could possibly, you know, work in some kind of a headcanon if you're able to overlook a few minor details. Anyway, um... The story does not interest me. I'm not interested at all in the story. Uh, but I'm invested in the characters. And the major change in the status quo and the story location at the end of the premiere episode of season two make me very interested in what personal journeys these characters will go on together. I love that there's a big change of status quo. Um, and I love that the characters seem to have hit a pivot point um, from where they were going in the first one. That's what I, I love a show where you can watch it. And by the time you get to the third or fourth season, you, you look at who these characters are. And then you think back to where they were, who they were in the first season. And they were very different. I love that. That is exactly what I want in a show. Um, and it looks like this is going to give me that in a superhero, you know, uh, packaging that will resemble in many ways DC characters that I have invested in for many years prior to this. Uh, as far as the cast goes, the cast really grew on me over the course of season one. Uh, it really was not hitting for me, uh, you know, right away with the first one or two episodes, um, especially in the roles of Corey and Gar. They were not working for me as I first saw them, but... Um, Everyone else I accepted as good casting and performing in uh, at least an interpretation of their comic book counterparts with maybe, you know, I would say probably one exception. But all of them but one, you know, really, uh, really grew on me. And uh, I've come to accept them and be interested in them as characters. So I feel really good about the cast. That said, I, you know, I don't connect with the actress playing Rachel slash Raven, maybe in part because I want a different, more stoic interpretation of that character, but also because I think while she is scripted to be this kind of fragile um, girl that's kind of having a coming-of-age arc going on, um, you know, she's very emotional. I, I don't find her intense emotional moments convincing, especially when compared to the more subtle and realistic performances of some of her female co-stars. Uh, my hope is that both her character will change over the course of season two and she will be less... 
of a central focus now that the Trigon story seems to be done, at least for a while. Um, I think this actress could still be a great fit for the character for me, but I'd want them to take her in a very different direction uh, in order for, for her to work for me. As far as stunts and visuals go, the, as, as it was in the first season, the fighting continues to be really solid. The choreography and the way they shoot it and stuff, especially for TV, you know, I'm really enjoying it and, you know, feeling the brutality and stuff like that and, uh, and, and the impact. And uh, so, yeah, that's really been working for me. The CG in this episode, I think, was way too ambitious with the character of Trigon. Um, please, please use makeup for that character next time. You totally could have used a suit and, a, and makeup um, to do the same thing. And I know that you would have had to do some things with the legs, maybe in far off shots when he's walking around, then you use CG for his legs or something. I don't know. Use a combination of the two, but they went full CG. And, you know, after living in a post uh, Avengers Infinity War and Avengers Endgame world where we've got Thanos, you know, looking pretty good for a CG character, uh, a humanoid CG character, um, seeing this humanoid CG character falling so short of that yes i know it's tv yes i know i should maybe be more forgiving but i'm not gonna be so i uh yeah i thankfully he, it doesn't seem like he's going to be a recurring character and he wasn't in a ton of shots in the episode um anyway other than that i have no complaints about the cg and the effects um you know it's tv effects and so i guess i maybe do forgive a little bit it's just cg humanoid characters that i'm just like ah oh, man anything organic you try to make move around with cg and i'm usually gonna have a problem with it even Thanos I had issues with. <laughs> but, uh, but otherwise, you know, the effects CG, like the smoky raven effects and, you know, the uh, the other effects, you know, they, they look good. You know, they look fine. Um, and still cool to watch, even though they don't look real, if you know what I mean. Um, okay, so are there any worthwhile themes, you know, that might stimulate worthwhile thought or conversation uh, as a result of uh, watching this? Well, season one, I think, was all about the darkness within and dealing with the darkness within us. Uh, the season Season two premiere, and that's that goes for multiple characters across the board, maybe all of them. Um, the season two premiere doesn't resolve all of those issues, which I you know appreciate, but it does move the characters forward. I think I think all of them at least moves them forward a little bit, especially Dick Grayson and the Rachel Raven character. Now, in a pivotal scene in which Rachel is trying to free Dick from Trigon's control, she says to him, "This isn't who you are," or something very close to that. Uh, now, maybe that's true, you know, who knows where Trigon's control ended and Dick's free will began in this scenario, but this sentiment used in other stories with similar, you know, less otherworldly situations, I think does a disservice to the reality of how humans work. Uh, why is it then that, that when heroes are, are kind of giving in to darkness, that that it never seems to be who they really are, according to their friends and allies who are trying to bring them back to the light. You know, their friends and allies say, this isn't you. But if that character is exercising choice, even in horrible circumstances, well, it is who they are. It is a reflection of who they are. And if we ignore and refuse to own up to the darkness in us, we won't ever really be able to grow out of those dark patterns of living. Um, we need to have a sobering recognition of the darkness inside of us that is very much a part of our human experience and who we are. I, I'd prefer that supporting characters in these situations would plead with their friends using uh, different words. That said, uh, you know, when Jesus enters the picture, he changes everything. Once we have put our trust in him to forgive us and to 
pay for our sins, take care of our sin record. He, he credits his record of perfect goodness, uh, pastes it right over top of our own. You know, in that moment, we are forever assigned a new identity as adopted royal children of God. And so we can call each other up as believers by saying, this isn't who you are when we see each other giving into sin. You know, we still need to acknowledge and turn away from our sinful tendencies that still remain, even though we have new identities. You know, if we want to be free from those sinful patterns, we still need to acknowledge our sin and turn from it. Um, But as those who are being rescued, who have been rescued by Christ and are also in another sense being rescued by Christ, our sinful tendencies, whatever they might be, even if we fail uh, time and again to resist them, those things do not define us. They don't define who we are. Um, So anyway, that's a whole lot of yapping about a very quick and passing line, but that was part of, you know, kind of the the culmination of a major theme that was playing through the whole first season. So, but that's what stood out to me. All right, I have no idea what your tastes are in TV shows, but if I were a time traveler, I'd go back in time and say, Peter, skip and buy the Blu-ray seasons. Um, That's a much better value. The first season is like 20 bucks on Amazon, and that includes shipping, I'm pretty sure. Uh, And you're not sold on Doom Patrol and the other DC Universe uh, streaming service offerings yet. You like this one enough to want to watch it and even like risk just buying the second season based on how the first season was and the premiere was. Um, But you don't like it enough to want to like binge it really quickly and have that be your experience of every season to just buy a subscription for a month at the end of the season and binge the whole season at once. You know, you don't want to do that to, in order to save money. And you also don't want to pay, you know, that streaming service fee for three months in a row to watch it all as it comes out. Neither one of those is appealing. Go for that middle road, get the Blu-rays when they go down to $20 and, and that's going to be the way for you to go, Pater. All right. Well, it doesn't have an MPAA rating, but I would say it's an equivalent to rated R for violence and language throughout. And that's just commenting on this episode only. I'd urge you to do your own research regarding the content of season one and the rest of season two. I want to remind you guys to go check out the other members of the Christian Geek Central Network, such as the Strangers and Aliens podcast, the Theology Gaming podcast, the Untold podcast, POS, TOS, Helix Reviews, and the Retro Rewind podcast. For more information about the CGC Network, visit ChristianGeekCentral.com. This week, I got to check out a game I was really looking forward to trying uh, called Greedfall on the PlayStation 4. It's also available, I believe, on Xbox One and probably PC as well, but I'm not sure. Anyway, um, this has had my attention for a while. It's a kind of a party-based, although, well, you've got a main character, but then you have companions that can go along with you. It's that kind of RPG, like uh, very much on the surface level has some things in common with kind of Bioware, you know, and the the Dragon Age games a little bit and Mass Effect, that kind of thing. Uh, Certainly your relationships with both your party members and everyone that you interact with in this world is a a major component. So it's been getting a lot of comparisons to Bioware games. And I think after spending, you know, 
six plus hours with it, that's an appropriate comparison. Um, I do like those styles of games, although I tend to kind of like shrug my shoulders and go, eh, at, you know, all the interesting choices that Bioware, you know, kind of uh, claims to offer in their games. Because to me, those are very often not interesting choices. They are not like dilemmas, moral dilemmas. Rather, it's writing specifically designed to withhold information from you so that you cannot make an educated decision about which path to take. So they simulate quote-unquote hard choices by not giving you enough information and only giving you these dumb limited options to choose from and it's something that you know is a is mildly irritating i just roll my eyes at it's not something that keeps me away from a game or you know really irritates me enough to you know to not be in the mood to play it or whatever um but i i still would like to see things move in a different direction in choice driven uh interact you know character interactions in in rpgs so, uh, and Greedfall was kind of promoting itself as being a game that's heavily about choices and interactions with other characters. And so I was curious what they were going to do. The other thing that's really interesting to me is the setting. It, it's, it, it's a fantasy world, but it, aesthetically, you could almost say it's like an alternate history, you know, except once you get into the game, you see clearly it's in a different world. You look at the world map. It's like, OK, this is not Earth, you know, but it's very much aesthetically inspired by the American colonial period and also is kind of um, taking other themes or trappings from that. Basically, you're part of this. Uh, colonizing, you know, land that uh, is like early America, you know, um, and you're going to a new land because that's been discovered in the last few years because there's a plague that's a, a mysterious plague that's harming your people and in particular basically bringing about your mother's death she is in the process of dying and so you would like to find a cure for your people and word is that on this mysterious new island that was just discovered a, a couple years ago and is being slowly colonized by your people that uh that there could be a cure there and so you go on um a, a journey there to try and find this cure and once you're there you become aware of multiple uh, factions. Well, actually, before you even get there, you start out in your port town of your own country. Um, but even in your own port town, you start the, to get a sense of the different factions. There's a kind of a th pseudo theocratic, I want to say, religious faction that you can, you know, side with. But, you know, they're the usual monotheistic, uh, selfish, hypocritical, evil people or whatever. Um, and then, you know, there's a, like a, a political faction that you can join that's like an alliance of different uh, countries and stuff like that. And so, I think in the promotional materials, they said there's five different factions, and uh, I don't know if that's the case for sure. I haven't run into that many, but I can believe it. I've run into, I think, at least three at this point. Um, and uh, so it's so that's kind of like the aesthetic as far as like the colonial trappings. And then also the natives of this island you're visiting are also very much taking inspiration from, well... I don't want to say very much. They are taking inspiration from maybe some Native American traditions. And like, I, I'm reminded of some of the, uh, the art that has been found on, you know, cave paintings from Native Americans that when in the creature designs that remind me a little bit of that. I think they took some inspiration from that. And it's, and it also has a very kind of naturey druid kind of vibe to it. The native people. And, 
which is a little bit different, significantly different, actually, from, you know, your your stereotypical fantasy world. It's not riffing on the medieval thing and throwing magic in, and it's riffing on a different time period and place and throwing magic in. Um, and it, there's lots of browns. There's some grays, too, but it's a very brown game, and I'm totally on board for that. You know, for a while... Uh, people were saying, reviewers were saying, oh, I'm tired of all these grays and browns and I want some color. And I'm like, no, give me the dreary dark grays and browns. And so we had a season in gaming where it was unpopular to use grays and browns, but they are back, baby, <laughs> in Greedfall. And I'm really enjoying just this kind of dreary world. I mean, you start out in a city where like easily half the population seems to be dying or dead already, you know? So it's a, it's a pretty heavy premise, you know? Um, but I, I'm enjoying it i'm enjoying the visuals you know because they effectively convey the creative world this different type of world but apart from that they're not really impressive in fact i would even believe if uh, someone caught me off guard and told me out of the blue before i knew anything else about the game that this is an up xbox 360 game available now ported to ps4 i would believe that um so they're not super impressive um the, the textures aren't as rough as like bard's tale 4 director's cut was i mean they're much better but uh, but i mean also the animations especially the facial animations are kind of wooden and stuff like that so uh but you know it's it's uh, it's conveying the world you know i'm not seeing a lot of creature uh, variation and i've heard other reviewers say that you know there isn't even as you get deeper into the game you know um so there, there's one boss fight that you fight that's like this weird you know like half beast half tree type creature and i'm like that's cool let me see more of that i hope we get a, a bunch more of that but it sounds like we probably won't you know the, another enemy you're fighting looks kind of like some weird bear type creature and stuff so the the creature designs leave a little something to be desired for me but uh what the game lacks visually it starts to make up for in the auditory department the score has some really nice variation to it from traditional orchestral stuff to like some synthy ambient type stuff to it just it just takes me by surprise it doesn't settle into any one really uh defining style and i i'm kind of enjoying that it's just one more thing uh that makes the world unique and the voice acting is really pretty good in my estimation um and it and helps to offset the kind of wooden facial animations i really find it interesting even when like this one character is telling me about the history of his political faction that would normally be a huge snooze fest for me uh but somehow the way he was talking about it the ups and downs of his inflection and passion or whatever you, it, it was it was working for me it was doing something that kept me totally engaged you know <laughs> Um, the combat. The combat's okay. Now, my experience with it so far is just with trying to be a straight-up magic user, and I don't think I'm going to keep that focus going forward. The magic system is really lacking for me. When I come to a game like this where you have the opportunity in a skill tree to focus on magic then what I want to see is a bunch of different spells, a wide variety of spells and spell effects along with them, you know, that I can employ in combat. Uh, but this game basically just gives you some basic, a basic strong close-up attack with magic and a basic uh, weaker ranged attack with magic. But there's also a class that specializes in using firearms, and so I'm not really clear on what the difference is apart from the fact that magic can cut through the armor of your enemies, you know. Um, and there's no, like, list of spells anywhere that I can find, and all the research I did online indicates that that does not change. And so it's really just kind of an aesthetic thing, you know. It's it's basically just ranged 
used attacking that's sparkly and misty, you know? <laughs> um, and I wanted something more, I guess. I wanted like elemental stuff, and I wanted an attack that when you it hits one guy and then it branches off and, you know, kills, you know, hits the others next to him, or, you know, all those kind of cool things that you would see in a spell system in, like, Pillars of Eternity or, you know, the, the Dragon Age Origins. Um, it reminds me a little bit of Dragon Age Inquisition, which really simplified magic into basically three different types of attack spells, but it's even more simple than that. So, uh, disappointing in that regard. Um, there are some other elements to combat, like a balance system, where you want to try and maintain your own balance so that you don't get stunned or more become more vulnerable. Likewise, you want to try and stun and unbalance your opponents. But to me, that's not interesting. You know, in a fantasy world, you could put that mechanic in a game that's not in a fantasy world. If we're gonna be in a fantasy world, then give me mechanics, enemy weaknesses, and stuff like that that are fantastical. You know, <laughs> instead of just like knocking someone off balance that is uh, doesn't do anything for me um and so i at this point even though combat is rare and you would think i would want to try and enjoy and prolong you know all the combat experiences in the game that i do get to have um i've dialed it down just to easy because i don't really there is a dodge system and stuff i'm not really interested in learning that i'm more interested in the the tactical pause uh, option that they give you which is very similar to what i would call a real-time with pause system such as in games like Baldur's gate for pc those games and icewind dale uh, as well and of course pillars of eternity and and the early dragon or dragon age origins at least you know um, that's what I mean by the real-time with pause system. This is more of an action RPG with a tactical pause, you know, as opposed to, like, giving orders that your character repeatedly carries out until you tell them to do something different, you know. And your companions you can't directly control. They just kind of do their own thing, as far as I can tell right now, although you can change out their equipment, which is kind of nice. And uh, so I, I've just dialed it down to the easiest difficulty so I don't have to bother with d learning dodging timing and stuff. I mean, I'd still do a little bit, but... Uh, Mostly I just like gulp healing potions when I need to and and spam my spell attacks until everyone's dead. <laughs> <laughs> and then I pick up the loot. And that's where this game is a little stronger for me. It's, uh, you know, there's uh, not so not as much after battles, but definitely in crates and barrels and chests all over the world, all over the place, there's stuff you can open and find loot. And probably at about a every 20 to 30 minutes uh, rate, I was picking up some bit of equipment that was better than something that I already had. And so I, I like that. I'm also gathering a bunch of components which are going to factor into a crafting system, both for potions that I can learn and uh, changes I can make to my armor. But I haven't really gotten, you know, upgraded enough to really take advantage of those yet. It just definitely seems like there's a lot more to those systems compared certainly to the magic system. So I think what I'm going to do is keep my basic magic attack and then diversify a little bit and use the, like, there's a technician, scientist, really kind of a roguey type of class is what it looks like, that's that's right next to your skill tree as a magic user, so it's not too hard to go over there and dip into that a little bit. And, uh, and there's, like, you can learn to make potions that are basically, like, poison bombs or, like, flammable bombs, explosive type stuff. And I'm like, well, that's what I expect when I think of a mage. I want, from a range, from a distance, I want to make stuff explode, you know? <laughs> So I think to get my quote-unquote mage experience or something a little closer to it, that's probably what I'm going to do going forward. And, and I think that will improve my experience, especially given that I do love looting and uh, 
crafting, you know, I like that too, but I just love looting. I love picking up ingredients, and I guess I do like crafting, okay? <laughs> uh, but anyway, so I, I think that there is room for improvement that, that, is, that is likely to, to take place in my experience. Um, there are some minor annoyances in the game, namely missing tutorials, I think. <laughs> I was well, The game is a dark game. I mean, not thematically, it is that, but visibly, it is a dark game, and sometimes there's just shadows upon shadows and I can't I can barely tell what's going on and even trying to adjust like the contrast and the brightness and stuff um, on your display it doesn't improve that and it it I was like can I craft a torch at some point and it's and I can't remember how many hours in I just was looking through my menus and the different like uh, uh, entries that I in like the help section of your menus that uh, showed different gameplay aspects, you know, and one of them was lanterns. I was like, oh, lanterns. So it's, you know, you have a lantern, I think, automatically, and you can just equip it to a click, quick slot, and then when you're in a dark area, just turn that sucker on. And it actually doesn't dispel the darkness as widely and as as, mu- as effectively as I would like, but it definitely uh, goes goes quite a distance towards solving that problem of, of, of the darkness. Um, and then another thing is that, like, sometimes in dialogue this is really inconsistent um i think more often than not in dialogue when you're talking to somebody um when you choose a dialogue option and then you cycle back to you know where where that branch was in the in the dialogue path you know and you want to choose something else the option that you've already heard has not been grayed out and in a lot of dialogue oriented rpgs they'll gray out or do something to the options that you've already selected to so you know okay i've used that one already because like me i like to get as much out of the dialogue as i can get all the unless it's really boring you know (laughs) um but you know most times i like to explore all the dialogue options that i can and so since they don't gray those out um it's a very minor thing but every once every once in a while i find myself retreading ground that i've already been on before in a conversation and uh maybe more frustrating than that but still fairly rare and minor is um getting lost in buildings uh the insides of buildings can look a little samey and when you walk through a door, when you open a door and walk through it, you automatically close it behind you. And so if you walk into a room and there's, you know, you decide, okay, I'm going to search this room and you kind of make your circle all the way around the room, systematically check everything out or talk to all the people that are in there or whatever. And then you're like, okay, now I'm ready to move on to the next room. Oh, wait, wh- where did I come in from? Well, let's look. Normally in Skyrim or something, I would turn around and look at the door that was open, you know. Um, But this one, the doors get closed automatically. And so I found myself at least twice getting lost in a building and... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> never did find the the, ent- the 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 way I came in from in one building. I just eventually like stumbled outside into like the second store uh second story uh deck or platform. I was like, okay, I'm just going to jump off the roof here. <laughs> That's how I'll get down into the village again. Oh, but one thing I do like about the doors in this game, no loading screens, Bethesda, no loading screens. And I know they're an easy target, but man, it's uh it's a bit of a novelty to me that you can walk in and out of uh, doors in this world and there's no loading it just opens you go straight through it's very nice very nice uh let's see here the thing you know despite f- having some shortcomings for what i came to this game to experience i was really delighted uh and surprised by how much i'm enjoying the side quests 
Um, much like what I've experienced in the first 10 hours that I've played of The Witcher 3, the side quests are all interesting and fleshed out, no fetch quests, interesting characters, complex situations. Um, very often on these side quests, you'll get sent out to do some mission that seems really straightforward, but then you discover you've only heard one side of this story. And you find yourself wondering, oh, well, should I really follow through on this mission? Um, or should I side with the people that are kind of the enemy or the antagonist toward the person that sent me on this mission? You know, because there's just some complexity here. And there are, you know, ways to conclude missions. I mean, multiple ways to conclude missions that can also involve like lying to the person who sent you out on them to kind of like, you know, uh, finish the mission technically and get the reward for it. But you also hold back a little bit of information so that you can still be good with the other party that you were interacting with. And so there's that definitely that ability to play multiple sides. And I love that in like a Skyrim type game where you've got two major factions against each other. Uh, In that game, I played those two factions against each other for as long as I possibly could until I was forced to make a choice at the very end. And even then, I, you know, kept a special save so I could go back and try the other one too. <laughs> um, but yeah, I'm, I'm happy to report that I'm really enjoying the side quests in this game. And it's probably going to be the, the thing that, uh, a significant thing that pulls me back in anytime that I decide to sit down and play more of this game. Um, and also the dialogue options for the most part are really kind of an improvement, you know? I've I, I ran into some difficult moral choices that were difficult because they are morally complex situations, not because I didn't have enough information, not because there wasn't a question that any reasonable person could ask that would clear up the situation, you know? Uh, no, these were genuinely carefully thought out, morally complex situations, um, and I really appreciated that. Um, So the choices, the consequences, the acting for all of those side quests. I mean, the side quests for me are really a significant portion of the meat in Greedfall. So, uh, yeah, almost nothing but good things to say about that. Every once in a while, I did run into that kind of Bioware situation where it's like, okay, they give you a preview line of what you're going to say. And I really hate this trend, but I don't think it's going away anytime soon because everybody in conversation-based RPGs seems to want to use it where they give you like this little bit of of a preview of of what you're going to say if you choose that dialogue path but you don't know exactly what you're going to say and you don't know the tone necessarily in which you're going to say it sometimes greedfall will let you know of the basic tone and the and, you know, the spirit of what you're going to say uh but sometimes it won't in one time i was like man i see two options here one makes me think that if i take this option i'm going to be flirting with this character and i do not want to flirt with this character. Um, it's very similar. It was another, you know, potential uh, homosexual romance that I could have gotten into. I had a situation in Dragon Age 2 where the choice I found myself left with was, okay, you either need to initiate or start a romance with this character or the other option is to say something that's really super going to offend them and just be like hateful and intolerant in all the worst ways. You know, and so I look at the situation here is like, ah, oh, this looks like a similar kind of situation. And so I tried the one I was like, ah, oh, this doesn't this could be platonic. I don't know. I can't tell if this is flirta- going to be flirtatious or not. Tried it. It was. And so I was like, OK, back to your save. And then I tried the other one, which I was like, this could really go south. This she could really be offended by what I say here. Um, and it And it ended up not being that, you know. Uh, so there there are still instances of, of those frustrating dialogue choices. Uh, but on the whole, 
very much improved from what my experience has been with Bioware games, with Mass Effect and um, Dragon Age. So that's that's really cool. That's really cool. Um, I did run into one instance of kind of non-intuitive quest progression that reminded me of like JRPGs of, of yore, where you would have to like, in order to progress the quest, you talk, you got to talk to a person three times, or you got to talk to a person once, then go empty the garbage or do some random thing, and then just happen to talk to them again, and then they'll, you know, progress your quest or whatever. So there, there was a situation where I was talking and... Uh, I had to choose a dialogue option that had nothing to do with what I was currently investigating, what I was currently trying to figure out and explore. Um, But now I just know, okay, when you're exploring and interviewing people, trying to figure out a mystery or whatever, you just ask them every dumb question in the world, even if it seems totally pedestrian. And that's a little bit lame, but whatever, you know, Uh, that's it's only happened once. So again, on the whole, really really happy with the side quests with their design with the moral complexity with the voice acting i mean the side quests are like a major reason that i'll be sitting down to play this game some more um there are some religious themes maybe you know that they're going to be playing with it's it's too early to say um the uh the I, I want to know more about the monotheistic religion, you know. Uh, I, I don't think I'm going to be siding with them. I'm just going to be siding with everybody, on, you know, on the surface as much as I can until the very end of the game when I reveal my evil plan to take over the universe and kill everyone. You know? <laughs> or whatever. That's kind of what I'm playing. Is like some Right now I'm playing as someone who in their heart wants to watch the world burn, but in order to get to that point, they have to amass power. And to amass power, they have to get along with everybody. And so they can manipulate everybody. And so they come across as somebody that's really good and tries, you know, to do the right thing and, you know, whatever, blah, blah, blah. Um, and so that's kind of like in my head. And on a side note, I should say that the one thing I'm disappointed with in the voice acting is the protagonist voice acting. Um, very much like Fallout 4 and Dragon Age Inquisition, the voice actor has to take, I think, um, a very middle ground approach to how they read all of these lines because they can't know what kind of personality you're trying to cook up and imagine for this character. And so the delivery can seem just a little bit wooden and passionless in general. And that is a bit of a disappointment. I don't have the options to really uh, dig in and be like nasty or, you know, just kind of like, I don't know. Um, I certainly can't be like the old wizard that I'd like to be, you know. Uh, and so, you know, I'm just kind of putting up with that, I guess. Uh, it's just kind of be to be expected at this point. But um, yeah, and so my, my summary thoughts, I guess, about the whole thing is that I'm enjoying it. You know, I'm six and a half hours in. I realize, okay, when I sit down to play Greedfall, it's not going to be for the combat. Maybe it will be eventually, you know, if I tr- explore that other class. And you can respec um, later on in the game when you get a certain item, which I don't think is too rare. I haven't encountered it yet, but they mention it in the loading screens, and so it must be it must not be too rare. Um, and uh, I, so I think there's potential for me to get more enjoyment in some of the areas that are weak, but... I don't think the full enjoyment that I wanted, um, but I am enjoying these other elements of the side quests and the world um, and the, you know, just all the trappings I'm, I'm really digging. So yeah, for reasons that I did not anticipate, I definitely plan to play more of Greedfall. Data collection complete. Activating Usenet 1.0. 
I sat down in person with games media personality Colin Moriarty to talk about my lifelong doubting faith and the reasons I still hang on to it. Despite being an atheist for many years, Colin said about the interview, out of all the Christian-themed episodes we've done so far, I must readily admit, this one personally made me think about and question my own beliefs the most. You can listen to that conversation right now by following the link below. I hope you enjoy it. It is time for Extra Life again, and I'd love for you to be a part of it with me. Here's a recycled but slightly modified promo to tell you more. Once again this year, Christian Geek Central is participating in Extra Life. Uh, this is a charity that raises funds for the Children's Miracle Network of Hospitals, which provides free medical care to children whose families could otherwise not afford it. And this is very often for critical, life-saving treatment. Joining our team only requires a willingness to ask your family and friends to consider donating toward your fundraising efforts. Participants also usually do something fun and game-related to draw attention to their fundraising efforts, like a, a special game night at your home or your church, or like me you could do a crazy 24-hour video gaming marathon. Now, I'm theming it around video games, but really this, this event can be themed around any kind of gaming, which includes both video games and tabletop games of any kind. What you do to raise funds is entirely up to you, but I would love for you to consider joining the Christian Geek Central Extra Life team. Uh, as team leader, I'll be there to help answer your questions, provide some helpful tips if I can, and just in general be your fundraising cheerleader and try to draw attention myself to your fundraising efforts. You can get more information about the event as a whole at extra-life.org uh, and if you choose to sign up there be sure to select Christian Geek Central as your team so I can get in touch with you and then just help in whatever way I can. Fundraising can begin at any time but our main push is going to be through the month of October leading up to November 2nd. Uh, that's the annual Extra Life game day uh, when I'll be streaming my 24-hour video gaming marathon live and trying to stay awake without throwing up. More details on my live stream as we get closer to it. Uh, that's it for now. Once again if you have any questions about Extra Life being part of the Extra Life team, uh, shoot me an email and I'm happy to help. P-A-E-T-E-R at spiritblade.com. This week at youtube.com slash Christian Geek Central, I posted the video Living a Useful Celebrated Faith. That's the portion of James that we looked at last time. I've also posted my Titans Season 2 uncut or premiere, I should say, premiere episode, uncut review. Uh, and then I've put the Extra Life recruitment promo. Um, whether you are considering being part of the team or not, I would love it if you would just share that uh, promo. It's a short little like minute and 30 seconds or something promo. And uh, hopefully we can recruit more people to get involved uh, with uh, with this event. I think it's a great event every year and a great chance for us as believers to just kind of practice, okay, I'm going to do something that asks something of me, you know, in order to help other people. And we tend to be uh, I think a little more self-focused um, because so much of being a geek is about doing the things that you enjoy, the things that you want. And uh, uh, I'm distracted. I got distracted for a moment because I'm just thinking about uh, my son and we're having to have a, a talk with our, our youngest, uh, a talk with him about, you know, uh, pursuing the life that Jesus wants for us, which is about thinking of others before we think of what we want, thinking about, about what others would enjoy, what others would like, you know. Um, but anyway, I, I, it's, a, it's an event I look forward to every year and I always want more and more people to uh, be involved in that. So uh, if you go over to the YouTube channel, I hope you'll consider sharing that. Also, my greed fault trial and error review, which is a totally different content from what I shared on uh, this episode. Uh, it's me failing at the game and having fun with it and exploring it. And I do cover some of the same thoughts, but uh, it's in a different context. And, and hopefully that's something that you guys will enjoy. And then lastly, by now you should be able to find my video titled The Best Version of the Bible 
bookshelf tour number uh, part 15 um let's see here what else oh christian geekly news highlights from our twitter feed at christian underscore geek include a fair amount this week uh christ and pop culture tweeted a nice article using anime series violet evergarden to talk about the nature of god's redemptive love i thought they did a nice job with that one and they also posted another article about how our collective superhero fascination reveals a lot about how we define ourselves jesus and our relationship to him uh, the Reformed Gamers have started a playthrough series of the SNES classic RPG Earthbound. And RZIM has put up an interesting, uh, some interesting content. Uh, you know, science fiction about artificial intelligence often tries to implicitly redefine humanity as being merely physical beings. You know, but we, of course, should ask... Uh, is this idea true? If you're, a, if you're a Christian, it's highly unlikely that you would believe that we are merely physical, but maybe you've never thought about how to articulate that before, how to uh, talk about that with someone who's not a believer, or uh, yeah, wherever you're coming from, Ravi Zacharias International Ministries, a very thoughtful and thought-provoking thought ministry organization, explores the topic of whether or not we are purely physical in a video on their YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube and search RZIM. It's one of the most recent videos. Geeks Under Grace posted a thoughtful comparison between quote-unquote God with a small g in the anime series The Saga of Tanya the Evil and God as he is revealed in the Bible. Love Thy Nerd announced Come With Us to PAX Unplugged December 6th through the 8th in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. We want you to come and help us love and serve our nerdy neighbors by playing games and building relationships. Got questions? Shoot an email to matt at lovethynerd.com. And finally, Alpha Omega Con, the Christian comic and pop culture convention, is coming up on September 21st. You can get more information by going to alphaomegacon.com. For links to those stories and to stay up to date on the notable news and events from the wider world of Christian Geekery, be sure to follow Christian Geek Central on Twitter at Christian underscore geek. Now it's time for the weekly waistline. First Corinthians 9, 25 through 27. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Uh, as geeks, we are known for our creativity and intelligence oftentimes, but not especially known for our self-control when it comes to the pleasures of life. So 1 Corinthians 9, 25 through 27 is the mission verse for me as I aim to be more responsible with my body and grow in my ability to say no to my desires. My goal is to lose six inches off my starting waistline of 42 inches. My wife is joining me trying to lose four inches. Since we need some help as we develop this discipline, there is a prize pool of fun money waiting for each of us at the end and a $50 bonus to whoever gets there first. Uh, for more details about the whole thing, you can listen to episode 565. For now, the weekly waistline for me is 40.75 inches toward my goal of 36 inches. That's the same as it was last week, and I'll tell you why in a second. Uh, my wife, Holly, 2.75 inches away which is just a like a quarter inch gain from last week um we had three bad days <laughs> this week <laughs> uh saturday this last week there was a family birthday party at my sister's house and there was cake 
and there was really good chocolate chip cookies that she made, and I just, I indulged. And then my wife, Holly, later that night was just like, I was like, I feel like having a, like a, a movie and special like ice cream night. And those don't come very often. They are very rare. Usually like, uh, it's almost annual when we have that on for Valentine's day, you know, uh, not the movie night thing, but specifically a movie night with some ice cream, you know? And, uh, so since it's so rare and, and, you know, sometimes she's just in the mood to detox in a different way than I am, you know? So she was saying, Hey, do you want to spend time with me watching a movie and have some ice cream? I'm like, well, I'm not saying no to that. So <laughs> that made Saturday extra bad. Then uh, Sunday evening, we had a children's ministry dinner at church and there was just a bunch of great bad for me food there that I enjoyed. And then also on Monday, there was a friend that wanted to have lunch with me uh, and talk about some stuff. And so that was an extra meal out. And really the way I'm approaching my uh, diet right now is playing for the long term. You know, I am not at this point pushing myself to make very different choices when I am eating socially, you know, either going out with my wife, which we usually just do once a week for lunch or for other social events at other houses or restaurants or whatever. Um, I'm not, you know, limiting myself there at this point. Um, and I've been seeing results so far. I want to see how far I can go <laughs> before I start saying, oh, I have to eat unflavorful food when I go out to eat. <laughs> you know? um, and my calendar is looking pretty clear this week socially. So um, I'm hoping to maybe hit a milestone next week. And till then, I'm reminding myself again, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, 25 through 27, every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable so I do not run aimlessly, I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Stay tuned for another update on our weekly waistline next time. And now, uh, as I talk about Patreon a little bit, I wanted to give everyone a heads up about an important fork in the road that we are approaching. Sometime in the coming weeks or months, I will be making the decision to either continue toward production of the Storyteller audio series or move instead toward making more weekly slash monthly content for patrons and also uh, for the public. This coming Wednesday, September 18th, I will post a video at patreon.com slash spiritbladeproductions um, explaining the reasons for considering this change. And just so you know, most of what I post at uh, patreon.com slash spiritbladeproductions, anybody can watch even if you're not um, a patron. Um, there are some patron exclusive things there, but I also use that feed just to kind of collect everything that I do and put it all in one feed. So, uh, but anyway, um, this video, everyone will be able to watch September 18th, Wednesday, and I'm going to explain the reasons for considering this change and give an idea also of the possible content I could create as an alternative to continuing with the Storyteller series. Then the next day on Thursday, September 19th, from 6 p.m. to 7 p.m. Pacific, I will host an all-patron Discord voice hangout with the primary purpose of hearing from all patrons about this potential new direction and answering any questions they might have. And then any extra time beyond that, um, I'll be happy to just hang out and, uh, and chat. Finally, on Friday, September 20th, 
I will launch a patron-only poll at patreon.com slash spiritbladeproductions to collect patron feedback about which path they would like me to take. This won't exactly be a vote, as I ultimately need to make that decision myself that I think is best for the future of Spirit Blade Productions and Christian Geek Central, but the feedback I receive through that poll will have a huge influence on whatever choice I make. So please stay tuned and prepare to make your voice heard uh, if you want to have an influence on the future of Spirit Blade Productions and Christian Geek Central. For more information about becoming a patron of Spirit Blade Productions, visit patreon.com slash spiritbladeproductions. And as a reminder, when we're seven patrons away, once we hit 30 patrons, we're going to have a pizza, 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 <laughs> going to have a pizza with an asterisk party on discord so uh, patreon.com slash spirit blade predictions every now and then people ask me what's on my mind so i thought i'd take a minute to answer that question uh now pay attention please because i don't think i can do this more than once all right this part is my parietal lobe and if i dig back in here i can pull out some of my occipital I don't know what this part is, but whenever I touch it, I smell peanut butter. Welcome to part 15 of my bookshelf tour. We're getting now into some different territory that's not necessarily geek-oriented, but will give you some insight into my uh, Bible study over the course of my life and the kinds of things that I'm thinking about and working through personally. Um, So that's the kind of territory we're entering into now. I'm going to give myself... 10 minutes on my clock and see how much I can get through starting right now. All right, so we're going to go through some Bibles first. First up is the uh, Hebrew-Greek Key Study Bible, the New American uh, Standard Translation. And this one is published by AMG, uh, compiled and edited by Spiros Zodiates. This is the first Bible that I ever bought with my own money. And uh, I do like the translation. It's not necessarily like my go-to anymore. Uh, But this was recommended to me when I was in like, I want to say high school or early college by one of the volunteers in our church, kind of like young adults and youth ministry, uh, as a resource that I could use. And this would be pre-internet. Now it's much easier using blueletterbible.com or something like that. Um, Still a great resource though. Uh, but that allows you as a layperson who doesn't know Greek and Hebrew to get much, much closer to the languages than you would be able to otherwise. Uh, all of the keywords that really affect the interpretation of a passage are underlined, and then they have a, a number that will take you back to uh, an ex- a pretty extensive concordance and uh, lexicon in the back that will help you dive into some of these words. They also have, uh, you know, like notations that indicate what the form of each verb is or noun and stuff like that. So you can uh, dig really about as deep as you want to, aside from, you know, getting into uh, something like blueletterbible.org, which is going to get, well, even blueletterbible.org isn't necessarily going to give you all the same information as this. So I found this to be a resource that I'll still now and then get out, if nothing else, just to compare uh, what one lexicon says uh, about a word, you know, with what another lexicon says. So Hebrew Greek Key Study Bible, Zodiates is the compiler and editor, AMG Publishers, uh, still a resource that that I continue to come back to. Uh, Let's see here, next up is Zondervan's NIV Study Bible. This one uh, is in pretty good condition. It hasn't seen a ton of use. There was a time shortly after 
um, Holly and I were married that I really was trying to figure out how can I have a more regular time of Bible study, you know, throughout the week. And so I was trying to figure out what I needed to do to find my sweet spot that would keep me engaged, keep me interested, and it would also, you know, not just uh, connect with me intellectually, but would also connect with where I'm at in my day-to-day -day life, you know. And so this was a Bible that I bought in an attempt to kind of figure out, you know, uh, maybe satisfy some of my intellectual curiosity about various issues in the Bible and and it does have some life applications you know stuff too it's but it's going to be more about giving background historical background cultural background that kind of stuff and and maybe some different interpretational views uh, now and then but uh, I would say it's still a very good default uh, resource, the uh, Zondervan NIV Study Bible. Now, the NIV is not my preferred translation these days, um, but as far as like all the notes and stuff like that, they're pretty good. Every once in a while, they'll kind of glean in a direction that uh, I find to be not as persuasive as what some other resources will say on an issue, but I think as a default, it's not, not going to lead you into heresy, you know, uh, and it's widely available, widely respected, so it's a, it's a good uh, starting point for anybody, I think, that wants to get a, a study Bible. NIV Study Bible by Zondervan. Pretty good. Um, let's see. Then we've got a, uh, a New Living Translation uh, Bible. This is the Life Application Study Bible from Tyndale. And this was around the same time. This one actually got a little bit more use. I got a few uh, more wrinkled pages and some notes and stuff in here. But this was me trying to figure out, okay, uh, how do I spend time in the Bible that's going to be relevant to my day-to-day -day experience and bring this old book uh, into my, into my life, you know, and, and, and in a way that will actually guide and help and bring me refreshment and, uh, actually give some wisdom, you know, to help me navigate some of the, just the messed up or frustrating aspects of existing, you know. So, uh, this definitely got more use. One of the maps is coming out in the back and stuff. So, uh, the New Living Translation was for a while the, the translation I went to just because it was easy to read. And for a little while I was like, dang it, okay, you know, I know it's not the most accurate translation by far. Um, it's it's certainly better than the original, just straight up living translation. When they went to new living translation, they put a, a more effort into making it, you know, adhere to the original text. But it's still not going to be near as word for word as even the NIV, and certainly not as the NASB or the ESV. So, um, but I was just like, okay, fine, you know. Uh, I don't have the intellectual fortitude or discipline or patience or whatever it takes to make my daily reading Bible one of the more technical and accurate ones. And so I went to this. And for a season, that was really, really valuable. And so I would recommend that to anybody. If you just want, you know, someone said once, uh, you know, what, what's the best translation? And the response someone offered is the one that you read, you know. And, you know, I, I would nitpick that statement a bit. But you know what? Sure. You know, sure. If, if it's just an issue of whether or not you're going to spend time in your Bible or not, then go with a translation like the New Living Translation. I wouldn't necessarily recommend all, you know, like every paraphrase translation and stuff like that. Um, but I think the New Living Translation is probably a good middle ground between readability and adherence to the original text. Um, but I think certainly, you know, it was important for me after I'd built a habit in Scripture with my time spent in the New Living Translation, there did come a time where I was like, now I, I want something that's going to adhere more closely to the original text, but still for a season in my life, 
this was really valuable and I would recommend it to uh, a lot of other people too. Um, speaking of seasons of life, as a number of you know, I was a worship pastor for two years um, prior to launching Spirit of Life Productions in 2006. And during that time, uh, I purchased the for work and with the church's money, but they allowed me to keep this after I stepped down. Uh, this uh, version of the New Living Translation, the Praise and Worship Study Bible. And uh, man, this is a big honker for some reason. I don't know if it's the, the, the point size or something, but it's, it's uh, not the most portable thing in the world. It's a bit of a tome. Um, and uh, this one definitely has a lot of notes in it from when I was leading worship. You know, there's there's also some study helps in here that are specifically relevant to um, you know, spending time in worship and having a, you know, spending time focusing on God, orienting your lives, not just singing worship and corporate worship, but just in, in general in your life, orienting yourself uh, toward God. Um, I, I don't think, I think, you know, uh, oddly enough, in retrospect, a better praise and worship study Bible, for me, would just be a Bible that actually gets more into the text itself and in, in its grammatical and historical context, because the more I can learn about that, the more I can accurately apply things that are relevant to uh, dedicating uh, time and worship and and uh, your life in general to God. So, uh, but still, this is you know I, I keep this. It every once in a while will have some nice you know insights. Some of it's a little bit fluffy, the little notes that they'll have in here. But every once in a while there'll be some good insights that aren't necessarily in another study Bible that I have. I haven't pulled this out in a long time though. It's honestly mostly on my bookshelf just for the memories. All right. Um, and speaking of memories, um, this one definitely has some uh, some some significant memories to me. This is the Holy Bible, New International Version. It's not a study Bible; doesn't really have anything but the usual, you know, like uh, textual footnotes, very very minimal. But uh, this Bible I got as a gift for my 18th birthday from my parents, and when I got it and opened it up. Um, I really had to hide my disappointment. I was bummed <laughs> that my parents just got me a Bible. Uh, yes, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's nice. I don't know if this is faux leather or real leather, you know, but it's, it was nicely bound and, but I was just like, ah, <laughs> you know, um, but this was the Bible that, or maybe it wasn't my 18th birthday. It must've been my 17th or 16th. I think it was my 16th birthday. Um, but this is the Bible that I took a very important journey with. Um, I decided one year in high school that I was going to read through the entire Bible. That was an important thing I realized that I needed to do. And so I used this Bible to read cover to cover over. It took me about a year to, I think, to at least at least a school year uh, to get through the whole thing. And along the way, I made notes of every, you know, just about every weird uh, thing in the Bible that I could think of that, I, th that was just struck me as weird as like, well, what's that about? Or is this a contradiction? Or did God make a mistake here? Or whatever. I was just filled and filled. If you've listened to my interview with Colin Moriarty on his, uh, on his podcast show, Fireside Chats, which you can check the link below to go and check that out. I had, I'd highly recommend it. Uh, I talk about that season of my life in that interview. And this is the Bible that, uh, that was really with me on that journey as I was making notes and trying to figure this weird, book out uh and so and the and the, the journey you can see in sections of it falling out and in some of the in a lot of underlining and notes and things like that so uh this one certainly not a book that i go back to but i am thinking at some point that i might create um a Bible that has wide margins that will just include a bunch of notes from previous Bibles that I've put notes in, and I I can 
notate the notes so that I can say like, okay, this was the date or the, the time of life, the year roughly that I made this note and then have that maybe for my boys at some point to, to have so they can uh, flip through a, a Bible, a copy of the Bible that uh, will show them a bit of their dad's journey. So that's why I keep uh, uh, hanging on to something like this. Um, Let's see here. The last... Uh, no, I got two more Bibles. I'll cheat a little bit just so we can get through my Bible section here, even though we're at past 10 minutes. This is a wide-margin uh, Bible. It's a it's Zondervan NIV wide-margin Bible, and I kind of regretted purchasing, purchasing this almost immediately. It was a nice wide-margin Bible. I couldn't find one that was an ESV version of the Bible, which these days is kind of like my preferred default translation, at least just for reading. Um, and uh, so I couldn't find a wide-margin one at the time. I, I decided to settle for this. And ultimately, when I got it, I started using it. I thought that this would be the Bible that I would put. I, I was planning on making this my apologetics Bible. Like, I have all these books on apologetics and different resources, and I was like, I'm going to put a bunch of notes that have been relevant, that have been important to me from the, these various apologetics books that I've uh, read into um, the margins of this Bible, and, and this will just be kind of like my ultimate Bible for apologetics type stuff. And uh, and I ended up not doing that because I was just. And just at the end of the day, there was just some things about the NIV, NIV translation that were falling short for me. And I'm like, dang it, if I'm going to do this someday, I'd really like to do it. Or any kind of, you know, wide margin Bible that I decide to deck out with notes or whatever. I'd really rather it be the ESV or something, you know, or, or a different translation. Maybe the NASB. I don't know. Um, which I'll get to my comments, my summary comments on translations in just a second here. Uh, let's see here. And then the last Bible in my uh, stacks here is the One Year Chronological Bible. Uh, which... I did not, uh, I, I, I never I never used this to get through the Bible in a year chronologically. I bought it actually more for the fact that it was a chronological Bible. And that was interesting to me. Chronological in, if I'm, I'm trying to remember, in the order that, it, that things were written. Or was it in the order that things take place? I know that it combines the Gospels and tries to order the events according to like when they took place and stuff like that. So it's um, it's its use is fairly limited. I've used this just the, just for the table of like the the uh, table of contents, the order that they put the books in. I've used this in co in uh, uh, cooperation with some other dating resources to determine what order we go through books of the New Testament in our ongoing In Search of Truth uh, Bible study series on the Christian Geek Central podcast and the uh, Christian Geek Central YouTube channel. But other than that, this thing is really just kind of collecting dust these days. It was useful to me for a very brief time when, again, I was kind of trying to figure out how can I build a, a regular Bible reading habit into my life. Uh, this was one Bible that I bought, trying to figure that out. Uh, if I didn't mention, it's another New Living Translation. So again, that's a reference to that, that period of my life. Um, but it's really just up there, mostly collecting dust. And every once in a while, I'll refer to it for the way it orders the books of the Bible to, you know, to kind of have as a supplemental resource. As I consider what what book we will study next? Oh man, I have next up. I have all these books about sex that we that I thought we were going to get to, and we're not going to be able to get to them today. So uh, we'll look at that next time. But as far as like um, Bible, you know, uh, translations of the Bible, you know, which trans which translation do I prefer? Well, I don't think that any English translation of the Bible has God's uh, seal of approval for inerrancy. Um, and I have concerns about folks that become really zealous or really convinced that any one translation uh, does have that kind of a nature. What I what I do, I mean, I def when I'm just kind of casually reading, my default 
translation that I read these days. This is actually my Bible. Uh, it's just a, this is the one that I typically read out of during my day-to-day -day quiet time and, and even my study time. This is where I start because I just realized that at some point there's no study Bible that's going to have in it all the notes that I want. So I'm just going to get a cheap, you know, the, the kind that you buy in bulk, uh, ESV Bible, paperback, and stuff like that. I'll add tabs to it because my memory for the order of the books of the Bible is terrible. Um, and I'll just use this until it totally falls apart on me. I've put, I put packing tape on the front and back after a while to help hold it together and stuff. Um, and uh, so this is my default. And then I, I just use a bunch of different study resources and supplements to help me out. A number that aren't on my bookshelf because they're digital. Like I have the, uh, the full unabridged Expositor's Bible Commentary, which is like, I don't know, like a 12 or 16 volume set, but I have it digitally so I can, you know, search uh, things uh, more easily. Um, so, you know, my default for reading and just as a starting point, is the ESV. I find that that's, you know, from the impressions that I get, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's pretty readable, a little stiff sometimes. Um, and it's, uh, it has nice adherence to the, uh, the original text, I think. Um, but, I, you know, when it comes to like really studying the Bible, uh, I think really what, what I want to do is go beyond any one English translation. I want to use multiple translations or I want to get as quickly as I can to lexicons and resources that will get me to, uh, the original Greek and Hebrew words. I don't speak or read Greek or Hebrew. And so when I'm preparing the In Search of Truth study, I have a bunch of resources open, including at least one lexicon, uh, and, and I'm going through and trying to get a sense of the original language meaning uh, as much as I can. So um, that is my preferred version of the Bible, I guess. All right, that's it for now. Next time, books on sex and a little bit of apologetics and uh, some more about my personal journey of uh, figuring out my own study and quiet time and a book about marriage that was really valuable to uh, me and Holly in recent years. So more of that on the next installment of the bookshelf tour incoming transmission this week anonymous wrote in actually it's just uh one of you guys that uh, uh i was having an exchange with and i didn't mention to them that i thought this would be a cool email to share on the podcast and so i'm just leaving their name out but they were writing in response to uh, hearing my interview with Colin Moriarty and feeling motivated by that discussion to learn more about God and the Bible, which was so cool for for me to hear. And anytime that kind of reaction comes from anybody that's taken in some content that I'm a part of creating, uh, that's really rewarding to hear about. Um, I asked them uh, what specifically they were interested in, uh, in learning more about, and they wrote, as, f as for what I want to learn, I don't know. For me, my faith has always been kind of blind. I've always believed in God and Jesus. Questions of why or how have never been an issue with me. If I didn't understand something, I'd be like, God knows better than me. I've also had a calm peace about a lot of my faith. But up until I found CGC a few years ago, I never knew that the books of the Bible were written in different genres. I never knew the first two chapters of Genesis are a poem. One reason I have never studied is because I didn't want to find out something that changed my belief. So I guess for now I'm interested in learning about God's holiness, why God doesn't intercede sooner when I'm struggling with a mental battle of some sort, and the genres and context of the books of the Bible. Uh, and then he added, just thought of two more, sex and money. Um, so yeah, that's. Uh, I'll just add part of my response to, the, to this person. I didn't put, didn't put this in my email to them. 
But just that thought about like, you know, being concerned about, you know, changing your beliefs and stuff. Um, I am a survivor of having changed my beliefs on numerous things over the course of my life as a Christian. Um, even like early on when I was like expressing doubts and, and fears and things like that for, you know, different, different things that I had going on. Um, I, I would think to myself, oh my gosh, what if it's all crap? What if it's all baloney? But the more I've dug in and learned as much as I possibly can, the core truths of the gospel um, have only become more and more solid. And it's really the peripheral positions that I've had on things that I've been like, oh, you know, this might not be what most closely adheres to the truth of the Bible, you know. So I have really actually enjoyed a lot of the journey of seeing my views on different things change because it's part of the process of, of getting closer to truth. And that for me is always uh, really exciting because it only strengthens overall my, my faith in the end. So um, anyway, as far as the response that I actually wrote uh, to him, I, I wrote... I've read very little on sex. The only book I've read cover to cover on the subject is The Act of Marriage by Tim and Beverly LaHaye. Holly and I got it as a pre-wedding present. It covers practical issues in the bedroom and spiritual-slash-relational-slash-emotional issues in marriage with an emphasis on the former, you know, the practical issues. But since sex is so tied to relational issues, I can also recommend For Men Only by Shanti and Jeff Feldhahn. It's a companion book to For Women Only by the same author or authors. Holly and I spent some months each reading one chapter a week. She read For Women, I read For Men, and the, the chapters are sync up thematically. And then we would share our reactions and what we learned over a weekly lunch that we had together. Uh, sex is definitely covered, but more the emotional and motivational side rather than, you know, technique and practical issues and stuff. Uh, hey, if anyone was wondering, I guess this is a podcast for adults, isn't it? <laughs> All right. For money, I would recommend seeing if your church runs a Crown Ministries small group or class. Holly and I attended one right after we were married and... Uh, I thought it was a bit too regimented, arguably a little legalistic in how it is run, but I suspect that is purposeful for people like me who tend to be unregimented and unorganized. But that small issue aside, it was an extremely valuable experience that taught me a ton about money. I had no idea the Bible talked about money so much. Uh, we also met the people who would immediately afterward become our regular small group, which was just wonderful for years. So uh, it had some awesome unplanned benefits as well. But if your church isn't running a Crown Ministries group, you can check out the book Your Money Counts by Howard Dayton. Uh, that's the founder of Crown Ministries. I think it's also the main basis for the small group curriculum. I could be wrong. Um, regarding God's holiness, just kind of the otherness of God, uh, the set-apartness set of God, um, I'd recommend a general study of God's attributes, which means reading some kind of book on theology. Uh, don't let that scare you. An introductory textbook I recommend is Systematic Theology by Wayne Grudem. Now, he has some leanings toward lordship salvation as opposed to the free grace position I'm persuaded to hold that I've talked about recently in our In Search of Truth segment. Um, and he isn't as thorough as I'd like um, when I go to read stuff like this these days, but it's a book that reads pretty easily, and each chapter includes questions for personal application, an optional memory verse, and a hymn, which all help to bring things out of that purely intellectual realm and into day-to-day -day life. 
Um, if an actual textbook feels like a bit much to start with, then I'd recommend Knowing, or either way I'd recommend, honestly, Knowing God by J.I. Packer. Now, it's been a long time since I read this one, but the only gripe I remember having with it was his slight overemphasis on avoiding making images of God. I think he is even against having artistic depictions of Jesus, like hanging up in your house, but I could be uh, misremembering. Um, it's a widely read and respected book, tackling numerous facets of God's attributes and character and the relevance of those things to our lives. Really solid book, Knowing God, J.I. Packer. In fact, I should probably read it again. Um, for genres of the Bible books, I'd recommend the abridged version of the Expositor's Bible Commentary. It's a two-volume set. Uh, it's not, you know, it's a commentary, so it's not something you're going to read cover to cover. It's just a, a good reference material for when you're having your Bible reading time. And you're like, what is this about? Then you can pull out a book like that and jump straight to where it comments on the passage you're in. It's a two-volume set. Amazon.com has both volumes pretty cheap. I think one for five and one for ten maybe add shipping to that. Um, I have the unabridged digital version, and it's primarily what I use to prep the In Search of Truth uh, segment each week. Um, but even, you know, more in-depth resources like uh, these commentaries may not cover every point relevant to genre. Um, so I want to be clear about that. For example, this commentary isn't where I learned about the poetic elements of the uh, early chapters in Genesis, which some actually argue, by the way, extend all the way to the end of chapter 11. Um, but there isn't widespread agreement on that issue either, which may be the reason that it's not included in you know even a great you know commentary like this. Uh, but this commentary, and honestly, most good study Bibles, like the NIV study Bible from Zondervan Publishing, will alert you to the genre of a book in the introduction and include helpful historical notes along the way. Um, as for why God doesn't intercede sooner when we are struggling with mental battles, that's a specific issue I haven't explored, but it's the kind of, I guess I would call like life question that RZIM covers in many of their videos. So I might recommend browsing the videos at uh, the RZIM channel. Again, just go to YouTube search RZIM and that'll get you there and then maybe browsing book titles by Ravi Zacharias on Amazon so hope something in all that is uh, helpful to you uh, and to all of you guys um, alright what else well feedback <laughs> feedback that's what's next in the script give me your thoughts on this podcast Christian Geek Central the YouTube channel or anything else we're doing what should we keep or change or what's on your mind you'd like what's your dang it what's on what's on your mind that you'd like a potentially uninformed opinion on almost to the weekend, Peter. We want to make this show and all of Christian Geek Central as fun and useful as we can, but I gotta hear from you if you want me to do that. So send me an email or audio file recorded on your phone to p-a-e-t-e-r at spiritblade.com And once again, guys, um, seriously, if uh, any of you are ever interested in getting some help finding a good church in your area, then I want to help you do that if I'm able. Online resources and communities are good supplements, but by nature they just can't speak to your particular situation, like relationships in a local church can. I just have discovered that, I mean, there's so many resources I've taken advantage of over the years, but it's the people, the it's, it's a few isolated relationships I've developed in my local church 
that have made, I think, the biggest difference in my life. Um, and the context for almost everything in, New, in the New Testament assumes that we're serving and building purposeful relationships in a local church. So whether you're in a church that lacks Bible-based intentionality or not attending any church at all, if I can help you get connected to an authentic, compassionate, Bible-oriented church, I want to do that. You can email me at p-a-e-t-e-r at spiritblade.com, and we can try to look at some websites of churches in your area together. All right. Well, I am definitely ready for the weekend. Um, I'm tired. I had a. I wanted to take a sick day. <laughs> just if you had a day where you, you know you're not sick, but you're just like, dang it, I would really love to take a sick day today. But I didn't. I, I just had a nap instead, which got me through. Anyway, looking forward to this weekend. I plan to finish Pillars of Eternity. Um, I've been doing my second playthrough on the PS4 and that for a while. And with Greedfall here now and me already enjoying Bard's Tale 4, I'm like, okay, I I've got to finish something. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm in the expansion material and toward the end of Pillars of Eternity. So I am uh, looking forward to finishing that hopefully this weekend. And then also I'm thinking of watching some Lord of the Rings with my oldest, uh, who just finished watching the Harry Potter movies. And I kind of use that as a gauge. I'm like, okay, if these freak him out, if he's if these are too scary, then he's definitely not ready for the Lord of the Rings. But if he can watch these and there's no issues, he doesn't blink and stuff like that, then I think he's ready for uh, for Lord of the Rings. And so I showed him just a little bit of it um, a couple weeks ago, and he definitely was interested in seeing more. So I'm going to see if we can carve out some time to watch maybe the first hour of Fellowship of the Ring Extended Edition, which I just finally, finally forked out the, the bucks for the extended edition on Blu-ray. I've had it on DVD for years, but I was like, uh, I haven't watched it for years because I was like, the next time I sit down and watch it, I want to watch it on Blu-ray, but oh, that's a lot of money. And ugh, no matter how you try to buy those extended editions separately or collected, man, I kept thinking the price was going to go down and it's just not a whole lot. <laughs> so, <laughs> but I'm glad I got them and hopefully that'll be a little bit of fun between me and uh, my son this weekend. That's it, guys. Stay tuned after the credits for DS9 Shwarma with Matt McKinney of POSTOS, or jump back to episode 400 to start from the beginning. As a reminder, you can find episodes 0 through 500 of this podcast. I almost said podcast. Podcast archived as the Spirit Blade Underground podcast at spiritblade.com. Next week, if God allows it, I'll be sharing some thoughts from our friends at Speculative Faith, reviewing the movie Ad Astra, and getting us back into the book of James. Oh my gosh, can you guys hear that thumping and bumping right above me? It's Well, you can't tell that it's above me, but it's my son upstairs, and I've been on a tear recording. I didn't want to stop recording to run up there, or actually I have like this plank in my room that I, in fact, I'm going to do it. You guys are going to be, I'm going to do this experience live. You ready? Here we go. All right, I've got the plank, and now he knows that when I bang this plank on my ceiling three times that he stinking better stop whatever loud noises he's making or daddy's gonna come up and bring the thunder okay I'm not hearing any movement I think we got him 
All right. Well, till next time, please consider supporting the work of Christian Geek Central and Spirit Blade Productions and earning some fun rewards by becoming a Spirit Blade insider of any subscription tier at patreon.com slash Productions. You can also help this work by leaving a positive review of the Christian Geek Central podcast wherever you find it. Thank you guys so much for making time for this show. I hope you have a great week and that you'll join me next time here on the Christian Geek Central podcast as we continue to geek out and seek the truth. The Christian Geek Central Podcast is a community-supported endeavor of Spirit Blade Productions. This podcast is produced by Peter Fremson with support from the Christian Geek Central community at ChristianGeekCentral.com. For information about the latest entertainment and resources from Spirit Blade Productions, visit SpiritBlade.com. Thank you for listening. The Dominion has endured for 2,000 years and will continue to endure long after the Federation has crumbled into dust. Five years ago, no one had ever heard of Bejor or Deep Space Nine, and now all our hopes rest here. And that was When It Rains, dot, dot, dot. Um, and it is indeed to be continued. Yeah, this is another one, kind of like how we went through Act 1 of the series. This is the beginning of Act 2, where it's just like we're setting up where the trends are going to go for the next few episodes. Um, and they're interesting. I knew, I know that we have seen the end of the Ducat win stuff until the finale. <laughs> um, but yeah, we had Ducat. Recall how... Uh, Kai Wynn got the uh, demon book out of the Bajoran Vatican archives and was looking through this, this thing that only the Kai, the Bajoran Pope, has the permission to look at. And she wouldn't show it to Ducat. So he sneaks in. So Ducat sneaks in at night, takes it out of her desk to go have a look at it, and fire comes out of the book and strikes him blind. There is no way you can justify that with any sort of sci-fi technology disguising as mysticism. Nothing. No, this is straight this up is, magic now. Th- this is ex- this would be excessive in Lord of the Rings world. Um, this is D and D. Yeah, this is, and it's just like it's not that it's a bad story. Idea, it's just not Star Trek. Yeah, I can live with a lot of you know. I I've never minded the prophets. Um, I, I I like what they do thematically with the prophets and all that. Um, even the par rates the idea of, of Evil prophets that we have to fight doesn't bother me, but they keep going back to magic. They keep well, and it's just it's, it's kind of like how a lot of people square peg in a round really hole didn't like midichlorians in the Star Wars universe. Yeah, for the, the this exact is the same thing. Flip side of that, it's introducing an undeniably mystical element into something that has always been more scientific. Yeah, um, and again, we've been going that way for a while, but this is just like the the big extreme of that. Uh, but in the better storylines, and the only thing is, uh, so she sends Dukat off to go be a she, beggar. She kicks him out into the street to go beg for his dinner, and she says it's, oh, you'll learn humility, and then the prophets will forgive you and give your sight back. But really, she's just being a bee. <laughs> but it's hard not to smile, because Dukat deserves it. What? And like him and I were talking, and if the roles had been reversed, and Dukat kicked her out because she was blind... I'd be just as satisfied. It's one of those where you agree Ducat deserves suffering, 
But she is such a witch about it, and she's so smug. You want to punch her, too. <laughs> well, so it's normal, then. Yeah. Um, like I say, the better plots, um, but we find out, and here's a big shocker, so don't listen if you don't want me spoiled for a second. Odo has a disease. And it casts a pall on things. Oh, I guess before that, I should mention where Odo is. Uh, they have decided... Be, uh, okay, now we got several things. No, I, I Lamar, forgot how remember, Damar has started a resistance <laughs> against the Dominion. Yep. He's the Cardassian underground. But he's already losing all his men because he's fighting like a regular he's, soldier. Yeah, he's not doing a good job because he's used to being a normal soldier in a proper military. He has no guerrilla experience. So they decide, Starfleet decides, we should send him someone with guerrilla experience because we need to encourage this rebellion. We want it to do well. And I love this because it's perfect story arc and character arc. And it, may, it makes so much sense you'd think they planned for this from the beginning. They decide to send him Kira. And it's great because this is, while this is solving problems, it's introducing new problems. It's good, it's good storytelling because... You know, Kira and Damar, not only is there the whole Cardassian-Bajoran thing, which is a huge they problem. they personal enmity. They, they, they both hate each other. Because he killed Zial. He killed, he killed Zial. She beat the crap out of him. Um, and always just, like, needled that he couldn't do anything about it. And uh, So, and, you know, and so she, Garrick, and Odo have gone to Cardassia. And they've, they've got there without trouble because of uh, Garrick's uh, Obsidian Order experience. He knows how to get people onto the planet. So they're there, and they're and Damar himself is not being a problem, but Damar's right hand man Rusat is. I mean, he is going out of his way to needle, and it's like so stupid of him because it's like yeah, he's intentionally antagonizing Odo. He's picking fights with because Rusat is very much against the Dominion too. He's not like secretly trying to help the Dominion, but he is so caught up in his Cardassian pride yeah. that we can't let a filthy Bajoran help us out that he's actually sabotaging it. Because if he if he ticks off Kira and she just up and leaves, and he's in there arguing with every suggestion she makes, that's not a standard military. And they bring up one very, and this is a very interesting point. They find some other places that have weaknesses and say, we should attack this place because we can sneak in. They say, no, we won't attack that place. It's guarded by Cardassians. We, will, we won't attack our own people. We're only going to attack places guarded by Jem'Hadar. And you understand not only... Would it be very difficult to attack your own people? You understand, not just is this, you know, bad morale for the soldiers, but it's bad PR if they attack other Cardassians. They want to win more Cardassians to their cause, to their banner, and... That that's bad for the PR if if you're beating up your own people. But they bring up but, a very valid point that well that if you're going to do that you might as well give up now because as soon as the Dominion figures out that you're not attacking your own people they'll just station your people everywhere they'll yeah. just use them as Cardassian shields. They'll they'll they might even be evil enough to say oh we're just going to have a little Cardassian daycare at every installation yeah. you know God. Oh. Yeah, and that's just it. It's like. And, the old, and when someone's willing to do something like that, the only way to stop, you either let them win or you push through the shields. That they're, I mean, that's it's a brutal necessity. That's why war is not something you go into half-heartedly or just because it's fun. Um, and, on the, and on that ground, we found out that that energy-dampening weapon that's so devastated, it, it destroyed like 300 ships. 300. 
I remember when this when the war began, they were like talking about we lost almost a hundred ships, and it was this, yeah. was, this now, green EMP is messing them up. But there is a weird techno thing to where by an accident they found out Klingon ships can be made immune to these. Yeah, basically. So they do that. One Klingon ship survived the green EMP, and they went back and looked at the records and said, "Oh." It's because right before this happened, the, weird setting the to engineer put it on. changed something so that yeah, they figured out this is the setting you need to all you Klingon so, ships need to set your shields so to this. The Klingons are now EMP proof, but they're the only ones who can be made EMP proof. Because whatever the weird widget is, it doesn't work on Federation and Romulan ships. And so yeah, so the Klingons are now think about this tactically, the Klingons are the only thing that's stopping them from just running roughshod uh, with their with their magic EMP gun. And the Klingons, as we mentioned, has been talked about before already. The Klingons are probably the weakest of the three on the, the tripod of the three major powers in this alliance because they they take the most losses and they've been fighting more than the others. So it's the weakest tripod, and now it's the one they're leaning on. And that's when Galron shows up, and he takes Worf back and forgives Worf for all the problems they've had. And he honors Martok by giving him the Klingon equivalent of the Congressional Medal of Honor and all this. And then he says, you have borne this burden long enough, and so I'm going to do you a favor, and I'm going to retire you from command, and I'm going to take direct command. Well, no one except for Gowron thinks this is a good idea. Even the other Klingons who are drunk with their blood wine celebrating, as soon as he says it, they all like, stop, what? No one is buying that this is, like, something for Martok's sake. Everyone knows this is Galron wants the glory. And he instantly starts sending his people on just, like, uh, Leroy Jenkins into this fight. Yeah. Which, granted, Leroy Jenkins is car is very much to Klingon style. You know, they would regard, would regard him as a man of might and bravery and not just a moron. Well, not, not a wise Klingon like Martok. But- then is, now is the time to go to guard and hold up your line and show yeah, your defenses. Even, even the Klingons At would this say, point, you're playing for time. Yeah, e- even the Klingons at this point are trying to play a, a defense. Yeah. And Martok is saying, nah, forget that. Just run in there with the ball. And yeah. it's, it's just, ah. Uh, and what's, what's interesting is no one even suggests maybe this is a, a, a changeling trying to trick us or anything. And he's not a changeling. He is just an idiot. And it's even worse because the changelings aren't, like, they're not ruining us from the inside. We're ruining ourselves because this boob is who they, they bring up. He has very little combat experience, no, almost no military experience. He's purely a politician. Yeah, he's yeah. a politician. He's like Emperor Palpatine. And he's, and he's playing political games with this. He's, I, I don't know, are the Klingon midterms coming up and he just wants to make sure... He, he's got those uh, seats in the Ketha Lowlands. Yeah, well, it's he's. They make clear Martok is seen as the savior. He's like he's the hero who's saving us all. And we can't have that. Yeah. And Martok couldn't care less about any of that stuff. He just wants to serve. He just wants to do his job. It's the most frustrating thing because he has found his calling in life. He is good at it. He serves his people well. He is humble about it. And then here comes this idiot to come in and sweep it because he wants the glory this guy has earned. It's so frustrating, and in the next episode, we're going to deal with that. Uh, it was something Worf will eventually look very fondly on, but we'll talk about that when it comes up. But uh, and, and, and in the plot, like I said, we found out Odo has a disease, and as uh, Bashir keeps trying to investigate things, and Starfleet is starting to uh, block off any attempts Starfleet he has. Starfleet is stonewalling him from getting 
relevant medical records to try to cure Odo because they don't want a cure for the Changeling Plague. And it, it's understandable because what, what they say is it's not so much like we want them to die, but we don't want them to get the cure. But then they find out there's something even more insidious. Section 31 is behind this. And they actually caused the disease. They gave it to Odo. They deliberately infected him as a typhoid Mary. And this was all the way back in that episode when they went to Earth. And Odo generously shared, uh, he said, feel free to study me. See what you can do to learn to yeah. defend against he what went, people can he do. He went in there willingly to help them. And, and they responded they, by making him into typhoid Mary. Yeah. Oh. That's just, that's, oh my, that's heinously cold, even on top of the actual genocide itself. Uh, and next, and, uh, the next, ep next episode we're dealing with Gowron and his stuff. The episode after that is we're going to deal with the, o so yeah, we're setting up now, instead of like lots of subplots coming up, we're, we're setting up to where next week is, we wrap up this subplot. The week after we wrap up that subplot, and then we're just getting into the finale from there, so... Yeah. We'll see you next time for Tacking Into the Wind. Prepare for many dominoes to fall. <laughs>